0: Four different people asked me when I said I was preaching on Exodus today, aren't we in Luke? Yes, we are in Luke. But uh, recently, I taught through Exodus, which was actually the third time I've taught through Exodus since I've been here at the church. Um, And after three times, um, especially this last time, just really studying Exodus more than I ever have. um, And also reading uh, Austin Soros' dissertation, let me say it, the cliff notes to his dissertation. His dissertation probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to me because it'd be over my head. Um, uh, I found some amazing insights that I've just been so excited and wanting to preach. That uh, to be honest, I have no good reason to be in Exodus besides I really wanted to preach an Exodus this morning. So, but I do have a tie-in at the end of Luke uh, chapter twenty-four on the road to Emmaus. Um, Jesus appears to two uh, disciples, and kind of cloaks who he is, and asks the disciples, um, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter to, into his glory? And then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in, or in all the scriptures, the same things concerning himself. So in other words, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is pointing to me, and he does that by specifically saying Moses and the prophets, meaning the, the Pentateuch. That the first five books of scripture point to Jesus, specifically that the Christ would suffer and die. And so as we go over Exodus chapter 33 and 34, uh, we're kind of going to go over the whole, whole book of Exodus, but we're going to focus our time in chapter 33 and 34. I'd like you, uh, to see if you can see Jesus in it to see if this passage points to Jesus somehow that we're going to go over. And just take note of that as we go through it. But as you guys are turning to chapter 33, verse 1, um, I wanted to ask the question and start by just contemplating on what is Scripture? Um, it's a question that in seminary we spend a lot of time thinking about, and if you know, Scripture is foundational, I think it's a good question to ask. What What is Scripture? It's truth, it's light, it's God's word. But it's really God's revelation to us. That word meaning revealed, revealing. It's God revealing truths about himself, honestly about us too and our relationship with him, but mostly it's, it's God revealing truths about himself to us. I remember the first date I ever went on with uh, Sarah. We went to Olive Garden in Bakersfield, and uh, you know what we did the whole time? Just, just talked. 45 minutes down to, to Olive Garden. It was a Friday night, so we had an hour wait. Spent an hour and a half in dinner, and then 45 minutes back up to Tehachapi, and, and it was over four hours worth of us just, just talking. And it was really four hours worth of me getting to know her and her getting to know me. It was four hours worth of me studying her, really, and, and, and her revealing truths about herself to me. The Bible is God revealing truths about himself to us. And when you first get to know someone, usually where do you start? Hi, my name's Nathan. What's your name? What's your name? That's the the place we normally start, the first truth that we ask. And that's because, as I was sinking through this, names reveal a lot about us. In our day and age, they reveal a lot about us in, in the biblical times. They revealed a lot about you and who you were. But even in our day and age, I read an article recently in the Washington Post um, that claims it's kind of rude or taboo now to ask someone their last name on a first date. And the reason is, is because online dating—which it's not a bad thing, but online dating has just become so big in our culture that in online dating, it, it just reveals the first name and doesn't give you the, the last name of the person that you're meeting. And by asking the last name on a first date, it kind of gives off the sense that you want to Google search that person. And it's somewhat intrusive on a first date. Because like that's not good or bad, it's just what is in our culture. As culture changes, it might be a little awkward, but but names reveal a lot about us. There's an intimacy of knowing someone's first name. Even if you use someone's first name within a conversation, there's an intimacy there. It builds trust by using that name. Even, I was thinking about this um, in emails, when I write emails. If I want to, if I'm writing an email and I want to take that email and make it very personal, a lot of times I'll use the first name right in the middle of that email and say, like, Jim or Tom or 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 Bill. First three names, I don't know why this came to me. but, um, And I'll put it right in the middle of the email to kind of put an intimacy. These emails aren't super intimate. Um, I even remember uh, very clearly um, growing up in this church, uh, Mr. Boisier, uh That was his name all the way up until one day he said, Nathan, call me Mike. That was a big deal for me because there was an intimacy that brought in our relationship. Let me think about this. God has revealed his name to us in scripture. And that's a major theme, if not the major theme, in the book of Exodus. God revealing his name to Israel. The book of who God is. What does it mean that God is Yahweh? In other words, I really think, especially again after the third time studying it, reading Austin's dissertation, and just, I've really dived in this third time studying the book of Exodus. If you, if you want to know who God is, and, and that's why we're all here this morning, and there might be a few of you especially that are here because you want to know who is this God— Exodus is a great place to start. I want you to think about this, okay? Exodus 3 is the call of Moses. He goes—we know this story. It's been movies, cartoons. It's one of the most well-known stories that's out there in the Bible. Uh, Moses is walking, and, and, and he sees a burning bush that's not actually burning— it's on fire, but it's not burning. And, and out of that bush, God speaks to Moses and tells Moses, I want you to go to my people and bring them out of Egypt. It's Moses' calling. And Moses, in this interaction with God, anticipates. He has a couple couple concerns. But one of them is he's anticipating a question that the Israelites are going to ask. What if Israel asks, what is his name? What is the name uh, of God? I think that he was anticipating them asking, who is this God of our fathers? Because they knew the stories of of God, of their fathers. The stories that have been passed down. They knew him, but they've been in captivity at this point for 400 years. Who is this God? And can we trust him? Moses, what is his name? And so God answers Moses and says, Tell them, I am who I am. Tell the people that I am has sent me to you. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has sent me to you. As I've studied this passage, uh, I've, I've learned that there's a lot of disagreement in exactly what God is saying here. And Austin um, spent his whole dissertation on... on Uh, working on what God exactly is saying when he says these three things. But I think, and it kind of, like I said, I got a lot of this from Austin's dissertation. I think God is saying something like, I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what that means. I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what that name means. Therefore, I believe the rest of the book of Exodus is God showing what it means that he is Yahweh, Exodus 7 through 12, God shows his power and his wrath, right? Ten devastating plagues, each a judgment, each against a false god, each against false worship. Each because Pharaoh and, and Egypt refused to listen to Yahweh. Pharaoh even at one point says, who is this Yahweh. God was showing the world, showing Israel, showing Egypt, that there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. And showing in this that Yahweh is powerful, that Yahweh is is holy, that Yahweh is just, that Yahweh is wrathful, that Yahweh is even scary. I mean, God's wrath is scary. We have to get to that place and understand that ten plagues. I know we've made cartoons out of this, but these ten plagues has had brought death and destruction to Egypt. I just want you to think about this. The the last plague, the climax, was the death of every firstborn in Egypt. Can you imagine if Tehachapi right now all the firstborn just died? It's a horrible plague. There should be an appropriate fear of God's wrath. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instructions. Okay, the plagues are scary. But then we get to chapter 12, and we get to the Passover, and we also see that Yahweh is merciful, gracious, and loving to his people. He has his, he has his people kill a, uh, kill a lamb... Put that lamb's blood on the doorpost, and whoever had the, the blood of that lamb on their doorpost, God's wrath would come and pass over that household. Then after that, Yahweh saves his people from from Pharaoh, right? We know the story. Pharaoh lets Israel go, but then changes his mind and chases them to the Red Sea, and they're cornered in the Red Sea. Then God parts the Red Sea, lets Egypt or lets uh, Israel walk through on dry land, showing grace and mercy to Israel, then Egypt's army follows, and it com- the, the water comes crushing down on the army, showing judgment. Okay. And from this point on in, in the book of Exodus, uh, Egypt's out of the picture, really. We're left with Israel, Moses, and this holy God. This holy God. And so in Exodus 20 through 23... God shows Israel how to live in covenant relationship with the Holy God. He gives ten commandments. You want to have a relationship with the Holy God? You want to show this world uh, that you're in relationship with me? Obey these ten commandments, which become the foundation to all the laws in the Old Testament, especially in Ex- Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus. God says, I am Yahweh. And this is how you should live in covenant relationship with me. Ten Commandments. Think of it this way. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And at a marriage ceremony, you make vows, promises to each other in that covenant relationship. The Ten Commandments are kind of like Israel's vows to the Lord. We will not worship other gods. We will not make carved images. We will not blaspheme in your name. We will keep the Sabbath um, holy. We will honor our parents. We will not murder. We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not bear false witness. We will not covet. And we know in the book of Exodus what happens right after that. Israel breaks them. Right. Israel is unfaithful. Israel sins horribly. In chapter 32, Israel urges Aaron to make a golden calf out of the, the gold that God took out of Egypt and gave to Israel that eventually would be used for the tabernacle and, and and the temple. That gold, they make a golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai talking to Yahweh. I mean right away they break the first two commandments. No gods before Yahweh, no carved images. And not only that, in, in chapter thirty-two, verse six, it says this, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and and uh, brought peace offerings to the golden calf. And the people sat down, ate and drank, and rose up to play. That phrase, rose up to play in Hebrew, kind of gives a connotation of partying sexually. In other words, they, they got drunk and fornicated in worship of this golden calf. Israel sinned and rebelled against God. They broke their, or they broke their covenant with God. And just like Egypt, they refuse to listen and obey God's clear commands. Now, I want you to think about this. We get to this point in Exodus, Exodus 33. Uh, God, Yahweh is revealing his character, what it means that he's Yahweh to Israel, to the world, to Egypt. What do we know so far? What, is th- what does Israel know so far of this God, Yahweh? They've seen, at least, it has to be in their minds, these ten plagues. They know Yahweh is holy. They know Yahweh is just. They know Yahweh is wrathful against sin and sinners. They know Yahweh is all-powerful. And now they know they have rebelled and have sinned against this God. Ten clearly stated commandments, and they broke them. With that in mind, in the context of chapter 33, I want to jump into chapter 33, which... After this time studying, again, reading Austin's dissertation and, and, and just a bunch of different books on this subject, I'm starting to believe that chapter 33 and 34 in Scripture are two of the most important chapters in Scriptures, but they, they hold two of the most important verses in all of Scripture. How is God going to respond to Israel's sin? Chapter 33, verse 1, says this, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to, to your offspring I'll give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, uh the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Doesn't sound so bad so far, right? I mean, God is saying... Go. You can have the promised land. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey. And God's even saying, hey, I will send an angel. I'm going to destroy all your enemies. You guys can walk right in. It's yours. But look at verse 3 again. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. God is saying, you know what? You guys can have the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Why? Well, he gives two reasons. First, you're a stiff-necked people. In other words, you are a bunch of sinners. And if I go with you, I would consume you on the way because you're a bunch of sinners. Do, Do you see a dilemma here? Right? I believe this dilemma that we see right here in Scripture is everywhere in Scripture. It's a dilemma that is is core in all of Scripture. It gets to right to the heart of who God is and who we are in relationship with him. The dilemma is, God is holy and we are sinners. And here's where the problem is, because a lot of people I think, well that's alright. There's a separation between us because God is holy and we are sinners. Here's the problem. We need a relationship with God. God has made man to be worshipers of him. He has made man to have a relationship with him. Adam and Eve were made to to worship and have a relationship with God. We were made for God's glory. God's glory is our our deepest satisfaction. God's glory is our our deepest joy and our deepest need. Yet we are sinners, and there's a separation between us and God. I think Israel gets this. Look at at verse 4. When the people heard this, this disastrous word... I mean, think about this. Israel has made a lot of mistakes in the Old Testament. We know that. It's clearly stated. But they get it, right? We get the promised land still. He's going to get rid of all our enemies. But if he doesn't go, this is a disastrous word. They mourned, and no one put on ornaments, right? They get it. Without God, we are nothing. We're just like all the other nations. What makes us special is that God is with us, and now he's not going to go with us. Skip down to verse 12. And I want you to listen carefully to Moses' response to God because Moses goes to God. And and I think there's an important uh, clue in here with what exactly is going on. Moses says in verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you have said to me, or you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not yet, or sorry, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order that I might find favor in your sight, consider to the nation is your people. Verse 13, he's pleading with God. Please show me. Show me your ways that I may know you. Show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. And I think this goes back to, to chapter 3 when, when he anticipated this question Who is this God? What is his name? What does it mean that you're a Yahweh? Who are you? Reveal yourself to me, God. And I think at the heart of this, Moses really wants to know how can we have a relationship with you if you are holy and we are sinners? Look at verse 19. I know we're skipping around a little bit, but, but I want to make sure we get through these chapters. Look at verse 19. And he being God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. My name, the Lord. will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I think he's answering Moses here. He says, okay, Moses, you want to know who I am? I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to show you. I'm going to pass before you. But two, as I pass before you, I am going to proclaim who I am. I am verbally going to tell you who I am. Side note, if you are wondering, if, and if you don't know this, um, the, the word Lord there, it's in all caps, L-O-R-D. The reason it's in all caps is because that's the name of God. That's Yahweh. It's in all caps. When it's not in all caps, that just means Lord. The, the word Lord. When it's in all caps, it, it's, re, it's replacing Yahweh. And that's the name Yahweh there. And we'll, we'll explain why that is in, in a minute. But just when you see that, it's Yahweh. So let me read verse 19 again with that in mind. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name Yahweh. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy but he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. There it is, right? There's that dilemma again. Again, you, you go through scripture, you'll see this everywhere God's grace and mercy. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And then you see God's holiness and justice. You cannot see my face, for for man shall not see me and live. In other words, my holiness will just destroy sin. It destroys sin, and you're a sinner. Therefore, if I show my full presence to you, Moses, you'll just die. It will wipe you out. God's grace and God's holiness. Verse 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cliff of a rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll make or then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. In other words, Moses go into this little cliff, this little cave, cleft, and I'm gonna pass by, and right after I pass by, some of my glory will still be there. I will I will let you see that. But that's all you can handle, because anything else will just wipe you out. But there's something important. He also says, I will proclaim my name as I do that. So skip down to chapter 34, verse 6. Verse 6 says this in chapter 34. The the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. The L-O-R-D or capitalized, that means it, it's Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time in the, the Old Testament that Yahweh is is that way, where it's twice in a row like that. Yahweh, Yahweh. God, in this verse, these two verses we're about to read, is proclaiming what Yahweh means. I believe the next two verses are two of the most important verses ...in all of Scripture. It may be the clearest statement of who God is in all of Scripture. Austin, who, let me just remind you, um, has a PhD in Old Testament from a very prestigious school. This a guy that spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament, and this is what he says. Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7 is the most theologically significant statement in the entire Old Testament. God is answering Moses, and I believe God's answering Israel, the question that Moses anticipated in chapter 3. I think it's all pointing to this moment. This is what it means that I am Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children of the and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh means I am both a hundred percent and perfectly gracious and merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bending in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Yet I am also a hundred percent holy, just, and wrathful, by who, or but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh is perfectly both a hundred percent merciful and gracious and holy, just, and wrathful. You know where we get in trouble as humans? We emphasize one of these to to the the, the forgetting the other side. Our culture so loves that that God's gracious and, and merciful and loving, and, and that's so true. That's what it says right here. That's who I am, and we totally recoil at just the word wrath. We don't we don't like the idea that God's wrathful and just and hates sin. You just preach that, and people will get upset with you. You know what's interesting is we've done a lot of mission trips to Poland. It's the exact opposite. It's a culture that has been Catholic. Uh, It's 90-something percent Catholic, and has a history of Catholicism. You talk with all the youth there, and they all see God as this angry God that's just mad at sin and is ready to to be wrathful towards sin. And you have to emphasize, no, God wants to have a relationship with you. Yet the Bible finds this perfect balance of both— Merciful and, and gracious, yet yet holy, just and wrathful. We see it everywhere. Perfect balance. Genesis three, Adam and Eve, God's justice. They're guilty, they're naked, they're kicked out of the garden. God's mercy, they clothe their nakedness with animal skin. The flood, God's justice, floods the earth, destroying mankind. God's mercy saves Noah and his family in an ark in a boat, saving mankind. Abraham and Isaac, God's justice, demanding the death of Isaac for the sins of the family. God's mercy, right? Saving Isaac by providing a ram caught in the thicket. Exodus, God's justice, destroying Egypt with ten devastating plagues. God's mercy, saving Israel with the death of the Passover lamb. Listen, God is perfectly, 100% merciful and gracious, keeping steadfast love for for thousands, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Yet he is holy and just, but who by no means will clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquities on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children through the third and fourth generation. Amazing statement. And I think Moses gets it. Right? He does two things. In verse 8, you're going to see he pleads for and he puts his trust in God's mercy and grace. Acknowledging in sorrow the sins of Israel. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head down toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquities and our sins, and take us for your inheritance. Pleads for forgiveness, pardon our iniquities and our sins. Acknowledges sin, for we are a stiff-necked people. And God grants Moses, right? We know that Exodus ends with Yahweh's presence and glory descending into the tabernacle, showing that God not only forgave Israel's sins, but he would live in their midst. So Moses asked for God to reveal his name, and God said, My name is Yahweh. And that means I am a God that is both merciful and gracious, and holy, just, and wrathful. Now, I want to go back to that challenge I gave you. Do you see Jesus through this passage? I want to point out two ways I think Jesus is, is crying out in Exodus. That Exodus is pointing straight to Jesus. The first one, I want to start by asking a question. How can God pardon Israel's sins and still be just? How can God be both 100% merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, and holy, just, and wrathful, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That makes no sense. It sounds schizophrenic, right? A God that sometimes is merciful and sometimes not, and is back and forth, 100% merciful, I will make sure, or I will not merciful, I will not make you pay for your sins. And 100% just, I will make you pay for your sins. Do you see the dilemma? It's the same dilemma we see throughout the whole Old Testament. How can God show mercy on Adam and Eve and still be just? Right? If they sinned. How can God show mercy to Noah and his family if they were sinners, just like the rest of mankind, and still be just? How can God show mercy to to Isaac and Abraham and still be just? What about the sins of the family? How could God show mercy to Israel in Exodus and still be just? If they were just as stiff-necked as Egypt, if they rebelled just like Egypt did, not listening to the commands of the Lord— you see this dilemma in First and Second Samuel. Judgment on Saul, mercy on David. I mean, think of the prophets. Right? You're in one passage, and it's God's wrath and justice destroying everything. You get to the very next passage, God's mercy and grace restoring everything. How can God both be forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty? How can God be both 100% mercy and 100% just? It makes absolutely no sense until we get to the cross, where God's perfect justice was poured out on Jesus so that God's perfect mercy can be poured out on us. The cross resolves this dilemma. God, Yahweh, who is both holy, just, and wrathful, and merciful, gracious, and loving. I mean, uh, Exodus 34 is the center of who Yahweh is. Verses 6 and 7, Yahweh is both merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, yet he's both also holy, just, and wrathful, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The cross, therefore, is the center of who God is. He is both just and merciful. And the whole Old Testament points to Christ in the cross. The animal that was slaughtered in Genesis 3, that clothed and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve, points to Jesus. The ark that saved Noah and his family from the judgment that, that they deserved because of their sins, points to Jesus. The ram caught in the thicket that took the place of Isaac on the altar to pay for, for the sins of Abraham's family points to Jesus. The blood of the Passover lamb that covered the sins of Israel and satisfies God's wrath so that his wrath would pass over the households of, of Israel points to Jesus. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that his mercy may be poured out on us. And God can be both 100% just and 100% merciful. I mean, think of the cross. It's one of the most horrific things that's ever happened in human history. It's the worst sin that's ever been committed. Right? And God's justice was poured out on Jesus, yet we wear it as necklaces around our neck. Because it's God's mercy, too, to us. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning... All you have promised is God's wrath. You need to put your faith in Christ on that cross so that all the sins, all that wrath that that you deserve is poured out on Jesus so that God will pour out his mercy on you. Do not leave this room this morning without putting your faith in Christ. Listen, this was a mystery in the Old Testament. The saints in the Old Testament just trusted that God was merciful and just. They did not know how those two things went together. How can God be 100% just and 100% merciful? I don't know, but I'm trusting it. Moses says, we are sinners, God, but have mercy on us. We're trusting your mercy. It's revealed to us in the New Testament. The cross. The cross. So that's one way Exodus points to Jesus. Jesus there's another way that I think Exodus points to Jesus. right? And I want you to think about this. This question I had as I was studying this. If, if Exodus is all about Yahweh, and the name of Yahweh, and the name of God is extremely important, Yahweh, and we see this throughout the whole Old Testament, Yahweh is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And, and I want you guys from... When you're, when you're reading the Old Testament, just look and maybe underline every time if you write in, your, in the Bible, every time L-O-R-D is capitalized, that's Yahweh. You know how many times the word Yahweh is used in the New Testament? Isn't that interesting? Not once. I think Jesus saying I am alludes to it, but it's not the name. He's pointing back to it for sure. You see the response when he says it, but it's not the name. Where Abraham was, I am. Not once. I want you to think about that. This is what Austin says. I'm just going to read uh, his dissertation. Talking about Israel's use of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Israel was uh, um, certainly singing the name Yahweh, praying the name, blessing and cursing, using the name and greeting one another, using the full name of Yahweh. However, this correct and healthy practice um, began to shrink and wither around the time that Israel went into exile in Babylon. The Jews began to, to think that the word Yahweh was so holy that it should be protected from misuse. Some began to ascribe an unhealthy amount of reverence to this word rather than to the one whom the word refers. Increasingly, many Jews stopped pronouncing it altogether or only pronounced it in sacred places on, on special uh, religious holidays. This mood began to uh, be uh, shared by the, pro- or the priest, the religious leaders, the most, um, and then most of the Jewish people. There are reports in Jewish literature that after Jesus' time, that the divine name was only being said on the Day of Atonement and only at the temple. This practice dominated for years, decades, and centuries until something unbelievable happened. The full pronunciation of the divine name was lost. The Jews stopped er, passing on the knowledge of the proper name until somehow no one remembered exactly uh, what was the um, precise word that was used to refer to their God. We only have four Hebrew consonants, Y H uh, W H in English, and try to pronounce that. Without ver- uh, verbs, we don't know how that's pronounced. Y H W H. Yahweh is scholars' best guess to what verbs were used in between those consonants. Austin doesn't think that that's right, and, and no one knows for sure what the exact. Pronunciation of Yahweh is Y-H-W-H. So this leads to a question. What's written in the, the Hebrew manuscripts that we have? Well, there's just the, the four letters Y-H-W-H in, in, in Hebrew. But, but what would people say when they came, if they can't pronounce Y-H-W-H, then what would you say when you come to it? Well, the Jews, when they read the Old Testament out loud, would pronounce the word Adonai instead of Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, because you can't pronounce that. They would just say Adonai. Adonai means Lord or Master. And that's why all your Bibles have Lord. We've just adopted that in our, our, our modern-day Bibles. Lord capitalized to tell you that's Y-H-W-H. This is where it gets interesting. Jesus and his apostles used a Greek version of the Old Testament. This Greek version is called the Septuagint. We've talked about this here before, or the LXX. It, it, it's called the Septuagint because it was 70 gr- or Hebrew scholars that sat down and translated the Hebrew manuscripts into Greek because that was the common language or the common writing language of the day. And they translated it into Greek. And it happens to be that Septuagint, that translation, to be the, the, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles quoted mostly from. The Greek version of the Hebrew text. Guess what Greek word was used in the LXX or the Septuagint every time Yahweh was there? If you know, don't know Greek, so you probably can't guess, right? Kyrios, which means Lord. Kyrios. So every time they saw YHWH, uh, they would put Kyrios there, which means Lord. Now, guess what word is used more than any other word in the New Testament to describe Jesus? Kyrios. Kyrios, which means Lord. Let me just give you a few examples, and you tell me what this sounds like. Right? Romans 9.10 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Kyrios, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or 1 Corinthians twelve three, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, Kyrios, except in the Holy Spirit. The one that got me more than anything else is, is Philippians 2, 9. Let me just read this and listen to what it says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What name is above every name? And Paul is a a Hebrew scholar, a Jew of Jews. What name is above every name? Yahweh. So at the name of Jesus. And in the Greek, he does something very interesting here. He uses genitive instead of a dative case for Jesus, which means he could have easily put at the name Jesus... But instead, he says, at the name of Jesus. In other words, it's not Jesus, possibly, that he's saying. The name of Jesus. Well, what is that name? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kyrios. To the glory of God the Father. And you know what's crazy about that verse? Is he's quoting Isaiah forty-five twenty-three, which starts off by saying, I am Yahweh, there is no other. And therefore every knee will bow in in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess. Let me end with a quote from Austin. I was just amazed as I was going through this, reading this and studying this. Without the YHWH, the Yahweh becoming Lord tradition... We would have inherited a Bible where one name, Yahweh, um, was acting and speaking in the Old Testament while the name Jesus was acting in the New. Instead, we read of one Lord. The Lord, known by Israel as Creator, Savior, Holy, and Righteous, and the Lord known by Christians as Creator, Savior, Holy, and Righteous, they are the same. Jesus is the Lord. The Father and the Son are the same God, and the Spirit leads humanity to recognize this. Do we read about Jesus in the Old Testament? Of course we do, because we read about the Lord in the Old Testament. Therefore, we need to accept the character of God as presented in the entire Bible. There is no God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. We must accept the gracious and judging Yahweh as the character, as the same character as the gracious and judging Jesus. The core of who the Lord is is found in Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord, the Lord, a a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the the children and the children 's children to the third and fourth generation it 's just amazing god 's wrath poured out on Jesus so that god 's mercy can be poured out on us if you don't know if don 't know Jesus this morning, if you have not put your faith in Christ, I am going to tell you again. Put your faith in Jesus so that God's mercy can be poured out on you. He, he lived a perfect life. He went to the cross, died on it for our sins. He was buried for three days, and then he was risen and given the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are amazing. I'm so amazed when I see this book written by men, inspired by you, so consistent. The Old Testament all the way through the New, from Genesis to Revelation, all pointing to your Son and what he did on the cross for us, Lord. When Jesus says the whole Testament points to me, he, he wasn't making that up. God, you are a God that is merciful and gracious, and we put our hope and trust in that, but we also are thankful that you are just and wrathful. It would be unbearing to to live with a God that's not just. We want the evils in this world to be judged. We want all the wrongs to be made right, and it takes a just God for that to happen. Yet, Lord, we need your mercy, and you have found a way that you can be both perfectly merciful and and, and and just in the cross. Where your justice is poured out on Christ, and your mercy is poured out on us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that does not know you, Lord, that they do not leave this room without putting their faith in you, Lord. Crying out to you, Lord, for mercy. In your Son's name, amen.